Now, if the Lord is willing, we are going to spend these remaining four Sundays of the month of January in the Old Testament prophecy of Zephaniah. So I'll invite you to turn there with me now. First John was towards the end of the New Testament. Zephaniah is towards the end of the Old. It's on page 936 in the Pew Bible. And if you're using your own Bible, if you can find Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and then just turn back a few pages from there, you'll find Zephaniah between Habakkuk and Haggai. And as we turn there now, let's also pause and ask the Lord for his help in these brief but powerful words from the prophet Zephaniah. Father, we praise you for this little book. Uh, We've not spent a great deal of time uh, in it together, in these years together, but as we uh, try to look at it more carefully these next four Sundays beginning now, uh, give us your help. Uh, Help us to see what the burden of this book and this prophet was and is and what um, the application is for us in our culture, in our Christian culture, in our own individual lives and families, and in our church family here at Pleasant Ridge. Uh, Speak to us from this prophet uh, and begin now today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now let's just pause there for a few moments, and before we hear what the word of the Lord is, which came to Zephaniah, Let's just pause here at verse 1 and notice not only that our prophet is called Zephaniah and not only that he comes with a word from the Lord, but also that he brings that word in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. In the days of Josiah, king of Judah. Now you may recognize that name Josiah not just from the king's little namesake sitting in the pews with us today, but also because King Josiah, who lived near the end of the Old Testament period, was one of the greatest of all the kings of old. Josiah was a good king. He was a godly king who deserves to be and is, in Second Kings, mentioned in the same breath as King David. That's why we're still naming children after him after all these years. He, Josiah, did right in the sight of the Lord, we're told in 2 Kings 22, and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. And there were not many kings who were spoken of like that in the Old Testament. Even many of the better kings of Old Testament times had some but attached to the end of their legacy, some except. But not Josiah. Josiah was a good king, he was a godly king, but Josiah the good king lived in evil days. Indeed, so dark were the days that it wasn't until his 18th year on the throne that Josiah the king discovered the existence of what we now know as the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Josiah had 
already been king for some time, and he had been at work for six years already reforming the spiritual landscape among God's people. He knew that they were God's people. He knew that they needed to live rightly. And one of the projects that he undertook in the 18th year of his reign was to clean out and restore the temple in Jerusalem because it had fallen into disrepair. And so he did that. And as the repair work went on, one of the king's courtiers came to him one day to let him know that as they had been clearing things away and perhaps uh, in a pile of old records and files that hadn't been touched for many a year, underneath the gathering dust they had found a very important book. And it turned out to be the book of the law, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which explained how God's people were to live and worship. And so just think of it. You are the king in Jerusalem. You are the king of God's very own people. And you have been king for 18 years. And for 10 of those years, you've been converted. That's what we're told. In the eighth year of Josiah's reign, he began to seek the Lord. And for the last six years, you've been making spiritual reforms, doing the best that you know how. And yet, all this time, for 18 years of kingship, and for the years before that, before he was king, when he was merely prince, all this time, God's very own word has been hidden from you, buried in some old archives that no one has searched in many a long day. That's amazing to me that the king in Jerusalem didn't even know about the existence of God's own word, it would appear. Imagine the darkness of those days then when God's word had been unknown to God's very own people for year after year after year. No one knew it was there, no one read it, and they certainly weren't doing all that it said. We today are so familiar with words like, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You shall have no other gods before me. Honor your father and your mother. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We're so familiar with words from these first five books of the Bible, but Josiah, king in Jerusalem, though he may have known some of these famous passages by oral tradition passed down to him, he had never laid eyes on Genesis or Exodus or Deuteronomy from which I've just quoted. He'd never read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for himself. He'd never laid eyes on the account of Moses and the Exodus from Egypt. Indeed, so limited was Josiah's knowledge of the scriptures that it appears from the books of Kings and Chronicles, which record his story, that Josiah may have been altogether ignorant even of that greatest of Old Testament feasts, the Passover. Or at the very least, he was ignorant of how it was supposed to have been observed. And so, you can imagine what moral and spiritual conditions must have been like when God's word lay so long buried that even the king himself had never seen it, much less read it. These are dark days. And Josiah had his work cut out for him, bringing his people and their religion back in line with the newly discovered, rediscovered word of God. There was in Judah in those days idolatry of various sorts, worship of the Baals, worship of the sun, child sacrifice, cult prostitution, and so on. 
God's people in Judah looked just like the pagan nations around them. And you can read all of this by turning to the books of Kings and Chronicles and looking up Josiah in both. And God, as we're about to hear from Zephaniah, was angry. He was angry with the pagan nations around Judah that they were aping, and he was angry with his own people who had fallen into such heathenism themselves. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder, and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, this is what we would call today hellfire and brimstone preaching. And it was warranted. And it's still warranted, as we shall see in our own day. And 
if you want a phrase to sum up this portion of Zephaniah, you'll find it there in verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near is the great day of the Lord. And actually, if I'm reading these verses correctly, there are actually a couple of days of the Lord spoken about here. There is a coming judgment according to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1 upon the whole earth. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord, verse 2. And then the same judgment upon the entire earth is picked up again and talked about in verses 14 through 18, middle of verse 18, all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. And this, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, and in verses 14 through 18, is what we might call the great day of the Lord, the last day of planet earth, the end of the world that our sin is bringing down upon us. But then in the middle of those portions about the great day of the Lord, we're also told in verses 4 through 13 of chapter 1 that a day of reckoning is coming specifically for Judah and Jerusalem, for God's own people. So I will stretch out my hand, verse 4, against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. Those are locations in Jerusalem. Verse 12, it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit. So do you see there's two different geographies and two different judgments that appear to be described here. God is going to judge all the earth, verses 2 and 3 and verses 14 through 18. But then in the middle, verses 4 through 13, he's going to judge Judah and Jerusalem as well. And I believe I'm right in understanding that this judgment upon Judah in verses 4 through 13 is not a reference to the end of the world, but to the overturning or overrunning of the land by Nebuchadnezzar and his sacking of Jerusalem and the deportation of God's people to Babylon that was coming very soon. So there is the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, And then there is a day of the Lord as well in which God's own people will be disciplined for all the idolatry that has polluted the land. And we need to think about both this morning. And let's think for a few moments, first of all, about the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, the final judgment that is to come. It hasn't happened yet, of course, but we have to ask ourselves as we read this prophet from over two millennia ago, we have to ask ourselves whether or not planet earth, and the inhabitants thereon are still ripe for God's judgment. Are we really as far advanced? Are we really as, quote, on the right side of history as we modern men and women sometimes like to say that we are? Well, even a cursory look around at the the pagan world, at the spiritual descendants of the men and women, boys and girls, spoken of here in the last five verses of chapter one, even just a glimpse around would reveal that morally there's nothing new under the sun. 21st century people may sometimes sin in slightly different ways than the people of old. We certainly worship slightly different idols than the Canaanites did in Zephaniah's day, but what is in a man has not changed. 
with all the legitimate scientific and technological improvements that man has made and for which we're rightly grateful, we still have our own man-made idols, don't we? And there are still those who worship nature, just like these people worshiping the sun or the stars in verse 5 and the sun in the book of, books of Kings and Chronicles. There are still children whose blood is being shed by their own parents and staining our land. There's still rampant sexual immorality like there was in Zephaniah's day. And the Bible in our day, hopefully not in your life, but in our culture in general, the Bible is becoming more and more of a relic for the archives, just as in the days of Josiah. All the same signs of sin and degradation and forgetfulness and rebellion against the Lord that we read about in Josiah's day are present in our day. And so we can listen to the talking heads with great optimism about the progress of modern man and all that we seem to be doing so well, but in the background is always the warning cry of Zephaniah and others like him calling us to repentance, informing us that God will not suffer our sins forever, telling us that the brimstone is actually gathering up in heaps over our heads and is just about at its tipping point. God hates sin, my friends. He hates it. And we mustn't let this day of man's glib overconfidence and seeming advance on every hand deafen us to the fact that the coals are growing hot and that near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. Near is the great day of the Lord, you might say. Zephaniah wrote that word near in verse 14 over two and a half millennia ago. And it doesn't seem like the great day of the Lord was very near to him. And so why should I trouble about it possibly being near to me? Well, says Zephaniah in verse 12, that's how the stagnant of spirit talk. That's how the spiritually complacent talk. The Lord will not do good or evil. The Lord isn't about to show up now. I mean, look at all the things that have gone on and he sat idly by. We must be in no imminent danger. Or as they said in the Apostle Peter's day, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But, says Peter, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. And so I say to you again, with Zephaniah this morning, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. And we need to take that very seriously, both as we think about our own sin and as some of us maybe consider why it is that we're delaying in repenting of it and turning to Christ as Savior. And we need to think soberly about the coming judgment as well for the sake of our neighbors and the nations around us. Because whether by their own death and meeting the Lord in that way, or by the final fires of God's wrath that are described in this chapter, a day is coming upon our neighbors in this city and in the world in general when it will be forever too late 
for them to hear the cry of Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3, for them to seek the Lord while he may be found. And we must warn them. We must have something of the spirit of Zephaniah in ourselves, warning mankind, as in the days of Noah, that the flood of God's judgment is coming, making preparations for ourselves so that they can see that we're serious, and then warning them, preaching to them like Noah did in his day, that it will soon be forever too late to repent, but that today is a day of God's patience and grace, and that there is an ark in the Lord Jesus on which you may climb and be safe. The message is the same for our generation as it was for Zephaniah's. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Chapter 3, seek, or chapter 2, verse 3, seek the Lord. But then what about verses 4 through 13 in the middle of the chapter? What about this word, not about the end of the world, but about a coming discipline upon the people of God. The reason why I say that the discipline upon the people of God is not the same as the end of the world is because as you read this book, you find that God keeps holding out hope for his people and promising them that they will do well in the end. But there is a word about their discipline. There's a word about their sin as well. And the question is, does this still have application for us today? Well, yes, of course it does. There may be many differences in our circumstances today than those that obtained in Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Zephaniah. But again, as with the world in general, the fundamental things are still the same. Even as God's people, we are still today as they ever were in the Old Testament. We are still, as Robert Robert Robinson has taught us to sing, prone to wander, prone to leave the God We love. And our Heavenly Father, as he did with Old Testament Israel, still disciplines those whom he loves. And so we need to have our sins and the possibility of discipline on our backsides pointed out to us just the same way as Zephaniah did for his contemporaries. And so let's just take a few moments together and have a look at what the sins of Judah were, which Zephaniah mentions here in chapter 1, and see if there are any parallels to our own lives. And let's be warned by what we find, lest we find ourselves wailing under God's chastisement, as they did in Jerusalem's fish gate of old. So what are the specific sins for which Zephaniah calls his countrymen to account, and are we guilty of any of them ourselves? Well, Let's first notice in verses 4 and 5 here in chapter 1, the sin of idolatry. Idolatry. He says, the Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And then verse 5, those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, a foreign god. Idolatry was rampant in Judah. Now again, our idols in 2017 may be slightly different than those of the ancient Near East. You probably don't have any statues of Baal in your house And I doubt if any of you go up on your roof at night, as they were doing in verse 5, to worship the Virgo cluster or the Big Dipper. 
But you see, the essence of idolatry is, is the same in every generation. And the essence of idolatry is very much with us. The human heart, said Calvin, is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, when we're done, when a generation is done with these idols, our hearts just keep making new ones. And even though our monotheistic cultural heritage has put out of our minds the thought of worshiping a tree, probably for most of us, or a statue carved out of a tree, we can still bow our hearts, we can still substitute the one true God, or for the one true God, all sorts of lesser things that cannot see or hear or speak or answer prayer. Entertainment, for instance, which eats up so much of God's time and allows many of us to just turn something on and escape conviction that he's bringing to our minds can be an idol. Substances, which we think we can't live without, can be an idol and can hold us in their grip the same way as Baal of old. Certain people or relationships for which we will sometimes betray God Choosing to please this person rather than to please God, that person then becomes an idol. Or you could think about popularity or success or sports or order or money. Anything that is so important to us that we will give ourselves to it instead of giving ourselves to God. That we will sin against God and turn our backs on God so that we can have this thing or this person, or this relationship, or this experience, is an idol. And many of these things can be good things. They can be God-given things, like the stars that the Jews were worshiping here in verse 5. Those were good things. God put them there. But if we use them as replacements for God, or if they become our chief satisfactions, if we are willing to betray God in order to serve this thing, or have this thing, then... This thing has become an idol to me and a stench in God's nostrils. We are still idolaters today. Do not think that because we don't worship statues that we don't have idols. We do. I do. You do. We're all prone to them. And so we must beware and we must repent when they are pointed out to us. And you must be honest with yourself today about any idols that may be in your heart and in your life. Things or people, maybe even good ones, that you're wrenching out of their God-given purpose and using them on a pedestal like Baal of old as an alternative to your maker. What is it for you? And will you not kick the idol over even this day and be done with it for good? Idolatry was one sin of God's people then as it is now. And then in verse 6, we need to think also about apostasy. Apostasy. Apostasy is simply when someone walks away from the faith. And that's what we have in verse 6. So God speaks against the idolaters in 4 and 5, and then in verse 6, he speaks against those who have turned back from following the Lord. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. And I just wonder if there's anyone here today or maybe somebody that will be listening digitally. And even if you've spoken to no one of it, yet you know in your heart that you've turned back from following the Lord. You know that you've actually turned in your heart and walked away from Him. Maybe it was done out of bitterness because He didn't do what you expected He would do. Maybe 
You walked away from him by giving way to intellectual doubts about the truth of the Bible, sown in your mind by Satan like poisonous seeds. Maybe it was that you just really loved your sin and you knew you couldn't serve two masters and so in order to follow this master of sin, you went ahead and wrote God out of your life or at least in your heart you did. And so maybe while you're here this morning, it's only because it's expected of you. But in your heart, you're among those, verse 6, who have turned back from following the Lord. In your heart, you've given up on God. And if that's you this morning, if you're the person that I'm talking to, I say to you that since you are here this morning, to hear God's word from Zephaniah that speaks precisely to your case, I say to you this morning that even if you've given up on God, God has not given up on you. That's why you're here. And he would have you turn back to him. He would welcome you back to him today through Christ, even now to be cleansed by Christ's blood and to start afresh with him. Therefore, as in the book of Acts, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Idolatry in verses 4 and 5, apostasy in verse 6a, And then what about the sin in verse 6b of self-determination? Self-determination. Those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. I think Zephaniah is preaching there at the end of verse 6 about self-determination, spiritual autonomy. Those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Those, in other words, who who have made decisions, those who have charted their life course, those who have determined their lives' paths without consulting God, without inquiring, verse 6, through Bible study and prayer as to what God has to say about these decisions I'm making. He's talking, in essence, in verse 6, about those who are running their own lives. And religious people, even Christian people, can be guilty of this, you know. And I wonder, again, if any of us are. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing this because it just this is the way most people live. And especially if our plans are working and God is not seeming to thwart them, we may just presume that, well, I'm sure God approves of what I'm doing. I mean, I didn't pause to ask him. I didn't really study the Bible about it, but I'm sure he would want me to do this. I'm, I'm certainly happy about it. But maybe not. There's so many people who think they're doing God's will, but if they would open this book and read just a few chapters, they would start to wonder if they were on the right path at all. There's a way that we can just coast through life, buying this, watching that, planning our families, pursuing certain careers, all simply because it's what we wanted to do, what we thought was wise, and assuming, therefore, it must be what God wants us to do, even if we never took time to actually ask him. Beware of that. Spiritual autonomy, self-determination. Self-determination, like so many other hyphenated words that begin with self, self-determination is touted as a virtue in our culture. But if it's the kind of self-determination that presumes upon God or forgets God, then it's a vice. And believe me, I know how tempting this is. We're all born... Sinners that we are, we're all born longing for self-determination, which is why children cry when someone takes their toys, 
because they had a plan for what they wanted to do, and now it's not happening. They wanted to determine their afternoon, and now they can't. We all want to be masters of our own fate and captains of our own souls, but you see, these prerogatives don't belong to the clay. They belong to the potter who owns the clay. And we are wise if we, the clay, can remember that that is so and begin asking God what he would have us do. So then, to his own people, the people of God, Zephaniah speaks of the sins of idolatry, apostasy, and self-determination, and then also of worldliness, worldliness in verses 8 and 9. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's son, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. Now, I think the great preacher of the last century, James Montgomery Boyce of Philadelphia, is right when he says that both of these verses, 8 and 9, are probably references to the ways in which the Jews were aping the customs of their pagan neighbors, both in their dress in verse 8 and in the way they imitated religious customs from their foreign neighbors as well in verse 9. Some scholars think that this leaping on the threshold in verse 9 or over the threshold, as some translations have it, was Jewish people imitating the priests of Dagon in Philistia, their pagan neighbors, these priests of Dagon who would not step on the threshold of Dagon, their god, in his temple for reasons that you can read about in 1 Samuel 5 when you go home this afternoon. They would hop over the threshold of Dagon's temple, and some scholars think that the Jews noticed that and started just imitating that practice when they came to their own temple. And so here are the Israelites, a people set apart to God and called to be distinct in many ways, including even in their physical appearance, and yet they are so eager to look in verse 8 and to act in verse 9 like the people around them instead. And says Boyce, I wonder what Zephaniah would say of our customs. We imitate the world, he says, in so many ways. And that's worth thinking about in your life. Whether it relates to clothes in verse 8, or how we worship God in verse 9, or to the manifold other ways that we are tempted to want to blend in with our lost neighbors, to imitate the lost in their supposed coolness, to not look like a stick in the mud in their presence. And we should, each one of us, think this out for ourselves. To be a Christian is of necessity to be out of place in many settings, to be different in many ways. And to be different is often to be thought weird. And are we willing to be? Or would we rather just talk like, dress like, and listen to the same music as, and laugh at the same jokes as, and pattern our worship services after what is fashionable among our lost neighbors. Think it out in your own life. Am I worldly? Are there ways in which God has called me to be different, but in which I am actually trying so hard to blend in? And where do I need to repent? So then, idolatry apostasy, self-determination, worldliness, and then in verse 12, stagnation. 
stagnation. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Now, referring back to the sins that have just been denounced by Zephaniah and then pinpointing the kinds of people that are being addressed in verse 12, again, James Boyce says this, when hearing a series of denunciations like this, the denunciations of the previous verses, he means, when hearing a series of denunciations like this, it is easy to excuse oneself saying, I'm not doing any of these things, and I'm not to blame for those who do. I'm just going to keep quiet and go on doing my own thing. And he says, that is what you call, verse 12, being stagnant in spirit. Living, as Boyce puts it, the common life of the indifferent. Just going with the flow, not really concerned about spiritual things, whether in your own life or in the lives of others. And that may be some of us this morning. We talked a moment ago about those who, for one reason or another, deliberately turn and walk away from God. But there are other sorts of people who end up in the same far-off places, not by walking away, but simply by drifting away. They've become stagnant so that they don't really pray anymore. They don't really expect God to do anything anymore, whether good or bad, verse 12. Their Bibles become tucked away more and more in the archives, gathering dust. And some of us, if we're not careful, could be on the front edge of that sort of downward slide, that sort of drift. Some of us might be growing stagnant in spirit, and we need to waken from our slumber before it is ever too late. And even if your stagnation doesn't destroy you, it may well bring down God's discipline on you, as may any one of the sins we've just been thinking about from here in Zephaniah chapter 1. Israel did go into exile for 70 years because of their idolatry, their apostasy, their self-determination, their worldliness, their stagnation. 70 years they were in exile because of these things. And God will chastise us too if we're really His. And if it should turn out that we're not His... Well then, says the Lord in verse 17, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. God hates sin. Whether it be among the heathen and their false gods or among his own people who ought to know the truth, God hates sin. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. He hates the sins in our culture. That's the main lesson here in Zephaniah chapter 1. And we do well to learn it and to take it to heart and to repent of our sin. God hates sin. But you know, this book of Zephaniah, which begins here with God seething about sin, comes to a close, as we will eventually see, with God singing over his people with God restoring and forgiving, so that the message of this book is not only that God hates sin, but also, wonderfully, that even still God loves sinners and plans ways, to borrow from 2 Samuel 14, God plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. It's true that even with the reform that King Josiah brought about, 
before and after he discovered the word of God, even with the reforms under Josiah, there still needed to be an earthly reckoning for Israel and Judah's long years of sin. And so Judah still went into exile, even in spite of Josiah's reformed. They were still banished, to use the word that I just quoted from 2 Samuel. But if you read on in this book of Zephaniah, you find that they did not remain banished forever. They were banished from their land, but they were not ultimately cast out from the Lord. And you will not be either if you belong to God through Christ. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. For even down at the end of our passage today, down in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, even in this great record of God's anger against sin, there is this glimmer of hope at the end that God's people, in spite of their exile in verses 4 through 13, in spite of God's discipline upon them, in spite of a day of the Lord coming upon them, there is still hope at the end of this passage that God's people will yet be spared from the great day of the Lord in verses 14 through 18. It's true, all the earth, verse 18, chapter 1, all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And yet, look at the very next sentences where God poses the possibility in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, of being hidden in that day of his anger. If you're among those who gather together and who seek the Lord, gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord. All you humble the earth who have carried out His ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Just like Moses was hidden from God's holy, holy, holy presence when God placed him in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 33, so we may be hidden here in chapter 2, verse 3, when God passes by the earth in judgment on the great and terrible day of the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Hidden where? Well, not in the cleft of some rock, because you know, even the stoutest of rocks, even the rock in which God hid Moses, these rocks, all of them, will be among the all things in chapter 1, verse 2, which, is God, which God is going to completely remove from the face of the earth. So we don't hope to be hidden in the day of God's judgment in the cleft of a rock, except insofar as we've come to think of Christ in the words of Augustus' top lady as the rock of ages, who has been cleft for us. Here's where we will be hidden in that day if we belong to Christ. Here's what Zephaniah is prophesying all these years in advance. Indeed, here's where we are hidden today from the justice that our sins deserve in the cleft of the rock that is the wounds of Jesus Christ. By his wounds you were healed And in his wounds and under the covering of his blood, you will be hidden in the great day of the Lord if you will but turn to him in repentance and in faith. Speak metaphorically, of course. We won't literally hide inside Christ's wounds, but it's because those wounds have been opened up. It's because Christ bled for sinners that we have a hiding place 
that we have forgiveness and shelter from God's wrath. And so in the same way that an opening in the rock provided Moses with a safe place to be near the holy God, so the open wounds in Christ's flesh received when he died for our sins on Golgotha make a safe place into which we may run for shelter. And in the light of the holiness and wrath of God described and promised in the book of Zephaniah, I urge you to flee to those wounds and to him who bears them and find safety even today. Zephaniah speaks here in hopeful but measured terms at the end of chapter 2, verse 3. Perhaps, he says, you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps. But other biblical passages, including some which we'll eventually see in this very book of Zephaniah, speak with all the more certainty. Not just perhaps, but a verse like, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is very certain news and very good news. And notice here in our text at the beginning of verse two or chapter 2, notice who is invited to do the calling. Notice who is invited to do the believing. Notice who is invited to seek the Lord. Who is invited to hide in the cleft of the rock that is Christ. Yes, the Lord does invite those to whom the opening passage of this prophecy is not primarily addressed. He invites the humble and obedient there in verse 3 to seek the Lord. Which means, as an aside, that no one is so humble and no one is so obedient as not to need a savior, as not to need a hiding place when we stand before God's judgment. Even the best of God's people are needy sinners. And they're invited in verse 3 to come and find a hiding place in Christ. But did you notice that God also invites, up in verse 1 of this second chapter, God also invites the very people he's just been pronouncing against in the previous chapter. The nation without shame. The people, in other words, who have been engaged in idolatry, apostasy, self-determination, worldliness, and stagnation. He invites them too. The call to gather together in chapter 2, verse 1, and to seek the Lord, as he goes on to say in verse 3, and to be hidden in the day of God's anger. This call is even issued to the nation without shame in verse 1. Even to the greatest sinners in Judah, in other words. And isn't that a mercy of God? It means that if you're here today and this passage has hit you right between the eyes, if you are here today and God has nailed you for idolatry or for stagnation or for worldliness or for walking out on him or for living so much of your life without consulting him, if you are here today and you have an arrow in your soul right now and you know that you have done badly, and even if up until now you haven't even been ashamed of it, verse 1, you yet are precisely the sort of person who is invited here at the beginning of chapter 2 to seek the Lord and to be hidden from his anger in the wounds of his dear son. Indeed, that's the reason why he sunk his arrows into you today, so that you might seek him. He has wounded your conscience, to borrow from St. Augustine, so that he might heal your soul. So whomever you are today, whether you've been living without shame, chapter 2, verse 1, or whether you're among the humble of the earth, in verse 3, who have carried out his ordinances, you need a Savior. And whomever you are today, and no matter your sins, you may have a Savior. If you will but seek the Lord, verse 3, by seeking his Christ, 
and coming to hide yourself in the shelter of his wounds. And so I just invite you to come to Jesus now, praying with the hymn writer, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee.